This afternoon we've come to Lord's Day 4 in the Heidelberg Catechism. Let's read that Lord's Day where we confess the following. But does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? No. For God so created man that he was able to do it. But man, at the instigation of the devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry with our original sin as well as our actual sins. Therefore, he will punish them by a just judgment, both now and eternally, as he has declared, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But is God not also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but he is also just. His justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. After the sermon, we'll voice our amen together by singing from Psalm 86, stanzas 1 and 2. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, that includes you, boys and girls, who are members of God's covenant and congregation. The questions in um, Lord's Day 4 this afternoon have to do with the character of God, who he is. And it basically basically comes down to this, is God just? Is God really fair towards us? After all, he demands the impossible of us, does he not? We already confessed in Lord's Day 3 that we are incapable of doing any good, inclined to all evil. When we baptize infants, we read in that form that it echoes this confession by stating that we are all children of wrath. By nature, we are children of wrath, subject to all kinds of misery, even to condemnation itself, and yet God demands that we keep his law perfectly. Both in the Old and the New Testament, the Lord demands of his people, be holy, for I am holy. And that's why the questions in Lord's Day 4 are actually quite appropriate. As long as they are asked humbly and with a willingness to listen to what God has to say in his word about these things. And so this Lord's Day then helps us to explore the relationship between God's justice and God's mercy. And our confession very beautifully expresses the comfort that believers find in knowing that God is both just and merciful. And so, once again, I would remind you that we are not abandoning the comfort that we already confessed in Lord's Day 1. And so I proclaim to you the gospel of Jesus Christ under this theme. Believers find comfort in confessing the justice of God. And we'll consider the integrity of God's justice. Secondly, the eternal nature of God's justice 
And I forgot to add the third point to the liturgy sheet, and the third point is the mercy found in God's justice. The mercy in God's justice is the third point. I'm sure you all know that when people are confronted with something they've done wrong, they begin to defend themselves. It's our natural inclination to defend ourselves when we're accused of something. Right, boys and girls? It's always the other kid that started the fight, right? And that's the kind of attitude that we have, but we also have that towards God. So question and answer, question nine is actually a very human question. But does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? In other words, isn't it really God's fault that things are going wrong? After all, we've already admitted that we cannot do any good. We confess that. And yet God demands that we do good. How is that fair? I mean, you can't squeeze blood out of a rock, right? Is God allowed to ask completely broken people to live up to the demands of his law? And if you think about it, after confessing what we confess in in Lord's Days 2 and 3, we should know better than to ask questions like this, should we not? But we have a hard time silencing these kinds of thoughts. And so we make excuses. Sometimes we even dare say to God, well, that's... That's the way God created me, so I can't really help who I am. And so we excuse sin in our lives. But we have to remember, congregation, that the questions that we are asking in Lord's Day 4, are we're asking them as believers, as people who have confessed Lord's Day 1, 2, and 3. Right? This is our confession. And so we ask these questions with appropriate humility, seeking to learn and understand the truth. And the answer in our confession takes us once again back to the beginning, to Genesis. Did God demand of man that which he could not do? And the answer is absolutely not. Because in the beginning, God did not demand the impossible of man. God created him so that he was able to do it. He was able to keep God's law. He was created in God's image, fully equipped with the means to live as an image bearer of God. He was created good, full of love, and he received the gift of love and was able to return that. And so God had every right to demand obedience to his covenant stipulations. God made demands of man according to his created nature. And according to that nature, God demanded to love his creator and to love his neighbor and to live in obedient fellowship with his creator. And so you could say that part of, part of man's nature was, that was his makeup to be obedient The law of God is is part of man's nature, part of his existence, part of his disposition, like, like water to a fish. So is man's relation to God's law. I would like you to turn with me to Article 14 of the Belgic Confession, which fleshes this out a little bit more than our catechism does. Page 
504 in the back of the book of praise, if you wish to follow along. Article 14. We believe that God created man of dust from the ground, and he made and formed him after his own image and likeness, good, righteous, and holy. His will could conform to the will of God in every respect. And this is also fleshed out more in, in the Canons of Dort, chapter 3-4, which we read together a couple of weeks ago with, in connection with Lord's Day 3. So, man was not created unable to do what God demands. He was created with a heart that was able to love God and his neighbor. And notice that the Catechism is not using the name Adam here but man, and the name Adam actually means man or mankind. And in Lord's Day 3, we already established that we are equally guilty in Adam, right? We have sinned in the sin of our first parents, what the Catechism calls our original sin. So we're not victims, we're not innocent casualties in this world, we are accomplices, in the rebellion against God. We don't want to follow the ways of God. We would rather do our own thing. Again, I refer to Article 14 of the Belgic Confession. If we continue reading there, it says, But when man was in this high position, he did not appreciate it, nor did he value his excellency. He gave ear to the words of the devil and willfully subjected himself to sin and consequently to death and the curse. For he transgressed the commandment of life which he had received. By his sin he broke away from God, who was his true life. He corrupted his whole nature. And by all this he made himself liable to physical and spiritual death. We would rather do our own thing. Again, even little children understand this. right? And we see the evidence of that. Where does it come from that a two-year-old toddler who only weighs about 25 or 30 pounds dares to look his 200-pound dad in the eye and say, I'm not going to do it? It's in our nature. It's not God who has changed, but we have changed. We have become traitors. While God remains God, we reject his love. While God remains the same, and so as we confess in our confessions, we deserve death because we deserve what God has promised. And so the Lord, the Lord is just and he is righteous. And the Bible says he is not a man that he should change, that he should lie. He's not going to go back on his promises. And this is all really quite straightforward, isn't it? This is what we confess. This is what we believe. This is how the Bible explains it. The thing is, though, we can sometimes have great difficulty with God's justice. Right? When we receive his blessings, right, we are thankful for his justice. We're eager to receive what God promises when, when it comes to the good things. But when he keeps his promise of just punishment for sin, it's a lot easier to come up with excuses, isn't it? Or to think that God is not fair. Fair. 
Well, congregation, God gave man everything in order for man to live for God and to work in God's creation. But God, but man took that, that blessing and that precious gift and, and he, he blew it. He yielded to Satan's lie. And so we became broken and sinful people. And yet God maintained his covenant with mankind. And God does not change. And so he still has the right to demand of us that we obey his law perfectly. It is not God who has changed. But we have. And yet we often treat God as if he has changed. As if his demands have changed or they ought to change. When it comes to the seventh commandment, for example. Right? We are told to stay away from anything that is sexually immoral. Well, that's really hard to do. Imagine if we really did that. How many good movies would there be left to watch? Not very many. And then there's the command that we should not murder, which includes the duty to be patient and kind and friendly and forgiving. But the people in my life, they're so miserable. They're hard to get along with. Why should I love all of them? Right? God can't expect that of me, can he? And so we act as if God doesn't really mean what he says. We act as if he doesn't have the right to keep the integrity of his justice and his law. And we complain. We complain, however, when our rights are denied. When we don't receive what we think is our due. So let me give you an illustration. Imagine for an for an instance, that you paid a contractor to build a house for you and you gave him a down payment, but he used that down payment and blew it on a great big holiday instead of buying material to begin building your house. Well, you would still have the right to demand that he builds your house, wouldn't you? And you probably would too. And yet we treat the Lord as if he should soften his demands. We might be willing to admit that he has the right to keep his demands, but we would really like him to be a little bit more reasonable with us. Right? God will understand if I, if I don't really love my miserable neighbor. God will understand if I, if I like to do some church shopping because I just don't like it here. In congregation, such things are an, an offense to the Lord because the Lord has the right to his justice, and that we obey his commandments. We owe him all honor, glory, and worship. We owe him everything, that we love him, that we do that with heart and soul, and we owe it to him that we love his people. But how much of what we owe him does he really get from us? We are to love him above all, but instead we love ourselves first. And the Bible is very clear that God has not lowered the standards after the fall into sin. And the demands in the New Testament are not lower than that of the Old Testament. Jesus says you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 6. And that's right in line with what the Lord demanded of his people, as we read from Deuteronomy. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandments and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. The Lord requires wholehearted devotion, undivided loyalty, and he doesn't allow for excuses. 
because he strengthens his people to live for him. Listen to what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 30. He says to his people, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Well, congregation, if that's true for believers in the Old Testament, it's true for us as well. We have received the promises of the covenant, which includes the promise of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. That promise is contained in that, in that word, unless, in answer 8 of the catechism. Yes, we are totally depraved unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. And if we have this promise, brothers and sisters, then what then is our excuse? We don't have an excuse left, do we? God gave our first parents perfect hearts to love him and serve him, but they cast aside his love. But now the Lord has given us his Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, who enables us to love our God. And so consider what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Because of our unfairness toward God, Christ was treated more unfairly than any of us can ever begin to imagine. And then who are we to still dare to think or say to God, well, yes, Lord, but it's really too hard. Your demands are unfair. After all, the only thing that God really asks of you is that you love him. And so we are called to confess our sins and our guilt and turn away from our sin and serve God with heart and soul. That's what God calls us to do. That's what we confess in question and answer nine. We also come to our second point, the eternity of God's justice or the eternal nature or the severity of God's justice. The next question in this Lord's Day is also an excuse that people try to come up with in order to find some wiggle room under this threat of punishment. And the question really comes down to this. God won't really punish our sins, will he? He won't really give us what we deserve, will he? Again, this is a question that we can, it assumes that we can treat God in a human manner. That perhaps God will overlook the seriousness of our guilt. It's a question that tries to get us away from that terrible curse that God pronounces over sin. But again, the answer of our confession is an emphatic no. And again, that's right in line with Scripture. As Deuteronomy 7 tells us, God repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. And we read something similar in Psalm 5. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. So God does not turn a blind eye to sin. And that's also quite clear from Scripture. God drowned the unrepentant world in the flood during the days of Noah. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because the people in those cities were so wicked. God punished the Egyptians because they persecuted his people. God 
shows clearly in Scripture that he is angry with sin and he punishes sin already in this life. It's not that hard to find evidence for that. People who allow greed and the love of money to get the better of them end up being consumed by it and consumed by bitterness because riches never satisfy. That's just one example. Another is in our society today we have discarded the sanctity of marriage. And so there's millions of children who don't know what it's like to have two parents. But we also experience the consequences of sin. Congregation, the world lies under the curse of sin. There is the pain of childbearing. There is the thorns and thistles that are part of this life. The sweat and the tears. It's real. It's tangible. To be sure, of course, for those who are in Christ, for those who are regenerated by the Spirit of Christ, punishment for sin or we could say facing the consequences of sin, is not God's way of exacting payment for the curse of sin. Only Christ can do that, and he has done that. But we are not completely free from God's anger over sin. We cannot expect that God will be pleased with us when we live in sin. And so we must also be fully aware that God requires that we confess our sins to him and that we also repent. And if we do not, we are in danger of the eternal fire of hell. That's also clear from Scripture. Punishment for sin in this life, then, is meant to bring about the repentance of the sinner. But if that doesn't follow, then eternal punishment will follow. And hell is real. Contrary to what many preachers today may claim, hell is not an idea or a state of mind. The Lord often, the Lord Jesus, when he was on earth, often spoke about hell. He insisted that those who do not repent will be thrown into the lake of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, constant anger and hatred of God. And Christ was speaking about the eternal reality of God's wrath over sin. And that emphasizes also, congregation, the terrible nature of sin. We need to understand that sin is an affront to God's majesty. Sin is so terrible that God cursed everyone who does not abide by the things that are written in the book of the law to do them. And the ultimate consequence of that curse is the eternal agony of hell. And so, yes, God exercises his righteous judgment over sin. He did not spare even an entire generation of Israelites who grumbled against him during those 40 years of wandering in the desert. He sent the ten northern tribes of Israel into permanent exile. Congregation, sin arouses God's wrath. But for this, we ought to be eternally grateful. We should think of God's justice in these terms. If God did not keep the integrity of his justice, if he did not keep his promise to punish sin with death, would God still be God? The Bible says God is not a man that he should change or lie. But what if he compromised his justice? 
would you or I still be able to take him at his word? If his justice would change because of the circumstances, or let's say God would accept a plea bargain on our behalf, could we still trust his other promises? If he changed his mind about the punishment over sin, could we trust him never to change his mind about the blessings that come with the promises of the gospel? More importantly, if God would slack off on his just requirement of punishment for sin, of what consequence, of what benefit would, be, would Christ's death be for us? And that brings us to the last point, the mercy in God's justice. Is God not also merciful? At first glance, that might seem like a somewhat innocent question. But this too can be used in a way to escape our responsibility to live according to God law, God's law. It's, it's kind of, the question is, comes from an attitude that says, well, you don't really have to worry too much about sin because God is a God of love. God is always merciful. So, right, I can sin all day and pray for a couple minutes at the end of the day and everything will be fine again. But if that is the attitude that we have, then we are, we are abusing the mercy of God. That's cheap grace. And if that is our attitude, we have not understood sin, grace, or repentance. It's the attitude that, that says that, yes, we understand God is a God of justice, but his mercy always outweighs his justice. Right, just do your best. God will overlook your mistakes. God's mercy will always outlive and triumph over his justice. In a congregation, that cannot be. God is not 50% just and 50% merciful, or 51-49. No, he is 100% just and 100% merciful. He is perfectly just and perfectly merciful. And again, for this we should be eternally grateful and thankful that he is a God who does not change. We should rejoice that this is who our God is. And the only way, the only way to really make sense of this is to look at the cross of Christ. The only way to understand God's justice and wrath is to look at what happened on that hill of Golgotha outside of Jerusalem. That is where God's wrath and love met in perfect harmony. That is where his justice met his mercy in perfect agreement. That's where the curse of sin was replaced by the blessing of sacrifice. Where the wrath of God was satisfied by the death of his own son. So God there, he did show his perfect mercy. Because he sent his son into this world to shoulder the curse of sin so that his justice could be satisfied. So he showed his perfect justice by punishing sin in his beloved son, Jesus Christ. And that's also why we can present our children before him for baptism. Because the Lord is both just and merciful. Our children, we all are, by nature, children of wrath. We are not capable of, of 
asking God to forgive our sins unless he moves our hearts to do so. And yet, yet we may receive the sign and seal of God's covenant promises, even when we are small and don't understand it. And even though by nature we deserve eternal punishment, God says to our children, you are mine and I am yours. I want to be your God. And I look on you in love and I am faithful to my word. So listen to me. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you think about grace, brothers and sisters, it's almost, it really is hard to wrap your mind around it, isn't it? It's a divine miracle that only the divine mind of God could come up with. We are sinners. Our children are conceived and born in sin, and yet God looks on us in love. So let's never forget that. Never forget that his love for us is possible only because our Lord Jesus Christ satisfied his justice, and he did it in our place. And yes, Lord's Days 3 and 4 have some difficult questions. But let's remember this. We have to get through that in order to get to the deliverance. Let me put it this way. You can only enter the family room of redemption if you walk through the hallway of sin and misery to get there. And the only reason that you can walk through the hallway of sin and misery and enter the family room of God's redemption is because the perfect justice of God has been satisfied. Because he is both perfectly just and perfectly merciful. And so he opens the way for us to enter the family room of God. Amen.